And you know, it takes three hours to get down to the bottom, as you probably know. Submarines are very clunky, cumbersome kind of vehicles in a lot of ways. And we got there, and you know, here, 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 I arrived at a place that uh, I know no one had ever been, and and the, hadn't even seen the light of day for billions of years. And what do I see? But trash, a lot of trash. It really kind of struck me much more than the the earthquake damage, which was still uh, quite apparent. As you know, everything's very. That's Dr. Gregory Stone describing a submarine dive onto a field of trash over 6,000 meters deep. And you're listening to this Ocean Life Podcast. Hey everybody, thanks for being here today for another podcast episode. If you want some fun stuff to read in between podcast episodes, you can find my blog at thisoceanlife.tv and sign up for the bi-weekly newsletter packed full of latest episodes, articles, fun news, and more. As always, your support by subscribing to This Ocean Life in your podcast app is greatly appreciated, as is your pledging of support on my Patreon page at patreon.com slash thisoceanlifepodcast. Everything helps keep the podcast fun, vibrant, and a great distraction from the strange world we are living in today. Now, raise your hand if you love your surfboard and paddleboard straps. I am definitely not afraid to admit that I do. The monster straps from my good friends at Mile 22 are so strong, so long, and so easy to use, it's insane. I've had over four pairs for years now and never go on a surf, dive, or paddle trip without them. Go to mile22.com to learn more and grab a pair of monster straps for 20% off when you enter the coupon code TOL15. That's in all caps. Now, In addition to that, day-to-day in the ocean, we all have sometimes crazy experiences, sometimes epic experiences, and sometimes a mix of both. And that's why two young brothers started Crepic, an ocean lifestyle apparel company that's purpose-built to encourage each of us to get in the water and live a crazy and epic lives in our own way. I'm stoked for them to be a sponsor of the podcast. Check them out at livecrepic.com and use the coupon code OCEAN20 with a capital O to get 20% off any purchase of their rad hats, shirts, and more. Now today, we have Dr. Gregory Stone, career oceanographer, conservationist, author of books, and overall expert on the ocean. Dr. Stone takes us through his transition from ocean researcher to ocean protector, touching on the many roles he's held within his career, culminating into his role today with Deep Green. We learn about polymetallic nodules and the massive potential these undersea rock formations provide for the key materials of cobalt, manganese, nickel, and more that we use to create our electric vehicle batteries. So Dr. Stone takes us through Deep Green's mission to extract these nodules from the deep sea as a sustainable and eco-conscious alternative to today's destructive land-based mining practices. Along the way, Dr. Stone shares his passion for all things ocean, mammals, sharks, marine reserves, and shares his perspective on developing socially responsible and economically viable businesses that help protect our natural world. With the continued rise of electric vehicles, which my family has to ourselves, today's conversation with Dr. Stone is fun, inspirational, and educational. You can learn more online by going to deep.green and finding Dr. Stone's page on Wikipedia. I hope you're all doing well, getting in, on, or under the water. Maybe not 6,000 meters deep like Dr. Stone here, but getting wet nonetheless. Thanks for being here today with me and Dr. Gregory Stone. So, Greg, first, I want to welcome you to the show and thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to uh, share with us today. Well, I'm happy to be here, Josh. Nice to meet you. And uh, I know you've got a little bit of a ocean not a little bit, but a, a substantial ocean background. So it's going to be fun talking to you. It is. I always get excited when I talk to scientific people. I have a background of my own, like doing just some of my schooling was in, you know, uh, fisheries biology and spent some time. So I get to geek out with for over an hour here with you. So <laughs> I appreciate that. Let's geek. Let's start geeking. <laughs> well, one thing is funny, man. I mean, you have a podcast too, and I'm going to ask you about it in a moment. But, you know, as you prepare... As I prepare to have a guest on, usually I'm like reading bios. Some people have bios, some don't. I'm looking at social media stuff to get an idea of who this person is, what they've done to be able to talk. And today, so I started that process with you, Googled your name and dude, you have a Wikipedia page. Yeah. Yeah, there's one. Yeah. It's pretty sweet. 
Does that mean something to you? I mean, I, I was different? impressed. It was like a one-stop shop for all things Dr. Gregory Stone. It made my, like I had everything I needed to chat with you in like five <laughs> minutes versus sleuthing all over the internet like I usually do. Are those hard to, are those, I mean, I don't, I know, I know you, I can't, I don't have control over that, but are those unusual or? Uh, I don't know. I just I think you might be the first yeah. guest I've talked to who's got one. Uh, but anyway, oh, okay. I thought it was really awesome because it's got everything I need to know, you know, right there. So uh, made yeah, it easy yeah, to, yeah. Right? It is. It is pretty good. Yeah. I, <laughs> thankfully, it's good. It doesn't. It, it didn't find the bad stuff. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Look, look yeah. pretty now, professional. Pretty clean. Out there, go. I don't want to inspire anybody to start editing it. But <laughs> <laughs> it's funny though, man. But you know, basically, you know, like looking at that and just reading about you, etc. I mean, you have this really super rich and diverse lifetime in marine science, you know, I mean, from yeah. everything dabbling in a lot of different stuff from deep sea sharks to marine protected areas, leading expeditions to icebergs, work with National Geographic. I mean, you can be a 10 part podcast series just with yourself and your life. But today <laughs> what we're talking about is something different. You know, we're really talking about um, deep green. We're talking about polymetallic nodules, which is not a household term yet. Uh, and so, and really your work to help find the right resources, materials to be able to lead the, this transition into clean energy and, uh, you know, electric transportation. So that's a 50,000 foot view. So let's start there if you would, and just start working down, um, if you will. Yeah, sure. Yeah. It is, uh, I, I, I am, a am a very broad, uh, my I'm an oceanographer, but I'm I'm very 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 broad. I, it's probably my my speciality is that I have a broad. I, I know I know I know something about everything <laughs> having to do with the ocean. Mm -hmm. I did my PhD and my degrees in marine mammals actually, uh, but I got out of that as uh, soon as I could. The only reason I did it in marine mammals is because I had a professor and there was a career path. You know, usually when you're a student, you tend to do what your professors are doing. But I found them kind of cumbersome to work with, hard to collect data. And then there was this weird kind of cult grew up around them where people wanted to talk to them and uh, you know, all that <laughs> stuff which was uh, drove me crazy. So I kind of went right back to where I was originally interested, which was the deep sea and coral reefs and uh, invertebrates. I love, I love invertebrate zoology in the ocean. That's really such a wonderful <clears throat> cacophony of marine life of life on the planet it represents the systemic uh nature of life on our planet much better than terrestrial things do and you know josh i um i expected to have a career in um basic research uh deep sea research uh pretty classical oceanography i didn't have a conservation or any sort of mission orientation to my life until I was in a submarine diving off the coast of Japan in the early 90s. And I was down at about uh, uh, 6,000 meters. And we were wow. looking for the epi epicenter of a, uh, I, was, I was living and working in Japan for the US government on a diplomatic passport and uh, setting up a cooperative science program with the Japanese. And at that time they had the deepest diving sub in the world uh, since it's been exceeded by, uh, the Chinese, but it was 6,500 meter diving depth. And I was in the, I was the first non-Japanese to use it. It was brand spanking new. I mean, the, the, the paint still smelled. I mean, it was just mm. so new. <laughs> and they, they wanted to get out and look at this epicenter of an earthquake that had occurred 10 years prior and caused a big tsunami on the West coast of Japan. And the first time they had the access to that depth. So that's what we were looking for is this epicenter for a submarine earthquake on the abyssal plain. And, you know, it takes three hours to get down to the bottom, as you probably know. Submarines are very clunky, cumbersome kind of vehicles in a lot of ways. And we got there and, you know, here, here, here I arrived at a place that uh, I know no one had ever been and, um, and the, hadn't even seen the light of day for billions of years. And what do I see but trash, a lot of oh, trash. Wow. And uh, it really kind of it really kind of struck me uh, much more than the, the, the earthquake damage, which was still uh, quite apparent. As you know, everything's very slow in the deep sea. It's like a time machine. It's like, there's no night, there's no day. Yeah. It's just this constant, deep, dark coldness. So uh, it looked like the earthquake had happened yesterday, um, but the trash left a, left an impression on me. And I came back 
from Japan after three years in the early 90s. And that's right when marine conservation was kind of becoming a thing, you know. Uh, there was a sense that there was something wrong with the ocean for quite some time. But it wasn't until the 90s that we started to drill down on it. By we, I mean the scientific community. And I was uh, invited to be a conservation director at the New England Aquarium in Boston uh, from NOAA, uh, NOAA National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And I took it up and because um, largely because of what I had seen, I had an emotional connection to the ocean. And I said, there is something wrong with the ocean. So I switched tracks over yeah. into really applied conservation biology and started to see uh, the problem. Then I started to see the solution sets and I felt there was a kind of a obligation. There's a consequence to knowing things, you know, it's, uh, it's almost like a moral obligation to, to do something about it. Once I had, I, I was perfectly happy diving in submarines, living in underwater habitats. You know, I, I love that kind of thing, but I switched over and that's where you saw the, that's where that other part of me emerged, the National Geographic expeditions and the, yeah. the, that, that tended to pop more to the popular culture. And uh, I spent the next 20 years uh, working in that space and uh, was the privilege to be the architect of the world's first large scale marine protected area in mm -hmm. Kiribati called the Phoenix Islands, which I could tell you about. That's another whole story in, in and of itself. And ended up going the route through New England Aquarium, and then I went up into the bingo. Do you know what a bingo is? No, do not. A bingo is a big international NGO. Mm. <laughs> and there's only, there's only a few of them in the world. And there's actually, there's a small body of literature out there on them because they are kind of a, a recent um, phenomenon in, uh, in human society. Uh, they emerged kind of in the eight, 70s, 80s, 90s, as big structures that emerged inside the civil society space to address problems that were coming, mm -hmm. address gaps. I like to look at NGOs as addressing gaps in our society, in our civilization that, that our governments and our other mechanisms don't cover. So I ended up in one of the bingos, which gave me broader global kind of access and amplification of my work and it was the conservation international and i spent 10 years there as their uh, chief ocean scientist and i was also their chief scientist for a while and i ran their comms department came under me for a while it was uh, i was in the executive you know executive vice president uh orbits and after 10 years i decided for a, ch I, a change you know it was enough travel enough fundraising enough staff management and i was uh offered a job at the World Economic Forum and uh, also with the uh, Ocean Envoy, Peter Thompson, which I took at first. Uh, and then I, I uh, met this guy named Gerard Barron, who was an entrepreneur from Australia or Australia. And uh, he's the CEO of Deep Green. And he chased me, you know, he didn't chase me down, but we met he was looking for me. He had read about me, knew all about me, and he was looking for me. And he found me at the UN at the SDG uh, 14 meeting. And he explained Deep Green, which is a company entirely focused on one thing, and that is recovering polymetallic nodules from the deep sea. And, you know, I knew enough about it that it didn't take long for him to uh, explain what he was doing, why he was doing it and the challenges that he was up against. So that was a very attractive option to me hmm. uh, to work in that space because it was uh, that's controversial. Uh, and But more than that, it was entirely necessary and a critical, I, I think, uh, part, a solution path. I, I would estimate that if you look at the global issue that we've gotten ourselves into as a species, you know, now that we've we basically inhabited the entire planet. And without knowing it, there were a lot of unintended consequences, mostly from the last couple hundred years. But we became aware of it now and we've got to fix it. And we've got to use the same brain and the same penchant for technology that got us in this situation to get us out of it. 
And I, in my mind, there's about seven or eight planks, let's call it like a political platform that we have to do fast right away. And this is one of those planks is uh, better sourcing of metals because we're entering the age of metals. We just kind of we're finishing off the age of oil. You know, it was rock, uh, bronze, iron. You know, you can cut it any way you want. But the next thing, which is from the earth, and it's something that we can't make in any other way. It's not something that we can, you, you can only make these elements in stars, right? So you, there's no other way to make them. We've got to extract them from Mother Earth. And we're going to need a lot of them for the renewable energy future or something that's called the fourth industrial revolution, which mm. is renewable energy, big data, artificial intelligence, a few other things. And terrestrial sources are, are there, but they are one of the highly most highly destructive and uh dirty extractive industries that we have on this planet accounting for large proportions of waste solid waste like 25 percent of all the solid waste uh 15 16 percent eight percent of the co2 into the atmosphere just from digging transporting and processing i'm not talking about using it so the polymetallic nodule solution was and i've got one right here uh, was is a is a very elegant solution i think and we can and we can talk about that and what what gerard and deep green uh, uh wanted needed was somebody who knew knew a lot about the ocean like myself and i had a had a history and a reputation in conservation that could speak to this with some uh hopefully some authority and some confidence that it it's it's uh, it's better for the ocean at the end of the day than the other path, which is to continue to dig up the earth mm -hmm. and all the associated problems. So that's the sixty thousand foot view, and I'll I'll uh, I mean I can keep going. I, I, I'm like I'm like I'm like a little ever ready bunny. You just get me going. I'll just keep talking. But yeah, if you 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 can steer me in a direction uh, one way or the one way or the other. But that's how. I, you and I came to this moment in time in history <laughs> and technology uh, for this conversation. Uh, yeah, Josh. no, that's a great overview. And I really love the story of being kind of hardcore science, but then having that moment when you're, like you said, 6,000 meters below the sea and you saw trash. And it's just like, you know, I love those stories of when things flip for people where you go, huh, this, this struck, that struck a nerve with you. And now who you are, you know, decades later on a course to help remedy that remedy, what we're doing as humans to the ocean. So I, I love all of that. And so, so now we're talking about, look, we're, we're trying to find another way to source the materials we need for like EV, right? So like for electric vehicles, the batteries and all that stuff, the land practices are super destructive. They're bad, contribute to global warming, which, you know, directly impacts the ocean. So by what you're doing then is you're, you know, you're basically actively trying to, you know, help the ocean. So talk about the polymetallic nodules, like give us a little natural history of these things. Yeah. Like how are they formed and talk about those guys a little bit. Well, uh, I've got one in my hand and you probably maybe on your site for your podcast, you'll have pictures, but they uh, are formed. I mean, I've known about them my whole life ever since uh, graduate school talked about them and, considered them as a source of minerals, but they uh, formed, I think like a pearl, the, uh, there's something that starts each one. Uh, often it's a shark tooth and atoms. Uh, of course, if you look at the periodic table of elements, everything on that table or almost everything is in solution in the ocean. And these uh, atoms, layer onto the piece of material, whatever it is, like a pearl. And over millions of years, they form these clumps of, of sort of lightish, almost, almost, it feels like almost basaltic rock, but it's not. It's a, a very unique, a unique process and formation in the ocean. And uh, they reflect the chemistry of the seawater around them. So you'll find polymetallic nodules elsewhere in the world. But only in this, there's a one area where they're particularly high grade uh, battery metals, uh, cobalt, manganese, uh, nickel. And uh, that's in the 
this area called the Clarion Clipperton Fracture Zone, which is in the high seas, a thousand miles west of Mexico. So these things formed and they just sit on the seafloor. They're not attached to anything, which is strange. And they're also almost always on the surface, even though they're millions of years old, they for some reason never get buried in the sediment. And there's several theories of why that is, but it's it's a it's a it remains a little bit of a mystery why they don't just get buried, and it's been theorized that these could be collected. In fact, they were back in the 1970s uh, by Lockheed Martin. They went out there and uh, started picking them up and discovered that in fact they could be picked up and brought to the surface through an air riser and. And the, the grade of the ores in a polymetallic nodule are, are much higher grade ores than on, you find on land. So very little waste. As a matter of fact, we have a process at Deep Green Develop where we believe we'll have zero waste or close to zero waste once this wow. is processed. And But back in the 70s, Lockheed Martin um, went to the UN and said, hey, we'd like to start picking these things up off the bottom of the sea out there. Is that all right? And the UN said, well, uh, uh, no, uh, it's not. I mean, you can do it, but we can't give you a, a permission or a license because the law of the sea, the constitution of the ocean hadn't been developed yet and uh, ratified by the world. And the law of the sea is like the constitution, as I mentioned, and that has in it a provision for what to do about resources that occur on the high seas in the area that belongs to everybody on the planet. Mm -hmm. So there was a framework finally that just matured and came into being after the 2000s. And uh, so it became viable just recently with a regulatory environment and a, and a set of operating principles that I think are laudable in that they reflect many of the lessons learned over the last couple hundred years, especially the last 50, 60 years in that the precautionary approach uh, efforts to uh, weaken the north-south divide in the world. <clears throat> There's a royalty system associated with this industry that's meant to mm. distribute the, the uh, profits uh, amongst uh, poorer countries that don't have the capital to, to enter the industry. Um, it's been in development for you know a couple of decades, really. It hasn't started yet. It's still very much in the... Uh, the uh, environmental impact assessment stage. So this is how these things are formed. They depend on uh, depth, uh, pressure is important. Uh, these occur 4,000 meters to 5,000 meters. They depend on uh, cold water. They depend on uh, ox oxygenated water. Mm -hmm. And the water at the, uh, a lot of your listeners may, may have heard of the thermohaline circulation system on the planet. So the water, uh, in the central Pacific, which is, which is sort of the central eastern Pacific, uh, comes from Antarctica because the ocean gets cooled by the ice around Antarctica and then it sinks because it's denser. It's also the salinity is a little lower because of the melting of the uh, glacial ice cap. That water sinks and then it flows along the bottom of the ocean very slowly. But because it came from Antarctica fairly recently, and that might be 100 years ago or so, uh, it's got a lot of oxygen in it. So everything sort of just came together in this one spot, uh, which is less, it's about 1% of the global seafloor, this clarion clippered and fracture zone. And a fracture zone is a, a fractures are uh, uh, geological features on the seafloor um, associated with plate tectonics. So. There was probably some oceanographer named Clarion and another one named Clipperton <laughs> who <laughs> discovered them and said, let's call them after ourselves. I don't know. But it's called the Clarion Clipperton Fracture Zone. And uh, now here we are with the IPCC, the, the UN Climate Science Committee, telling us that the temperatures are rising really fast. And we've got 10 years to get this under control before we might we might enter what which uh, terrifies me Josh the uh, uh, what's called a runaway heating climate scenario and that means that the the climate could start to heat in a fashion that we can't stop and 
that gets us back to the ice because when you lose too much ice, think about it, ice is a highly reflective surface. And as you lose ice, it's replaced by a highly absorptive surface. And just today I was reading yet another popular article about melting glaciers. And every time uh, I read these, I'm not a glaciologist. I have worked in Antarctica and dived there. So I have a, I have a visceral sense of that environment. But every time you read these articles about the melting ice, you and your listeners may, may recall, it always says at the end, and the melting is much greater than the models predicted. <laughs> every single <laughs> yeah. time. <laughs> you can so, expect that every in every article. <laughs> yeah. So the uh, we 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 have to uh, move on this, you know. And I did some calculations myself uh, this last year. I was looking at geological temperatures in the ocean and different epochs and eras, and you know when the Jurassic arrived, which was, I think Jurassic was like Bahamas everywhere on the planet. And ironically, the fossil fuels, some of them anyway, that we're burning today were laid down in the Jurassic. Right? It was, so we're, we're releasing Jurassic sunlight today yep. or Jurassic heat. The arrival of the Jurassic was about five, four to 5,000 times slower than the heating that's going on right now. Wow. To just give you an idea of the difference, what we, you know, because people say, oh, you're worried about one degree centigrade, you know, in 10 years. Well, yeah, we're really worried about it because it's it's the rate of change in today's mm -hmm. world that, that's the problem. It's not the change. We all know the earth is constantly changing, but this rate of change is so fast that, uh, the Earth has never experienced a rate of change this fast, except when there were things like meteors that came down and did the catastrophic things. But the normal, the normal, you know, revolutions around the sun and the tilting on the axis and the variations that occur in our elliptical orbit, there's there's natural cycles that warm and heat the Earth. Yes, there are. You'll hear that sometimes as an argument about uh, climate change, but they're gradual, and and animals and ecosystems and now us people. This is our planet, you know, can adjust to, to, to slower uh, changes, but these rapid changes are going to be, uh, could be catastrophic and uh, uh, people aren't going to like it. So we've got to, the, it's urgent that we do something. You know, we have a lot of, a lot of, a lot of people want to say, well, let's think about it for, a while. I'm not so sure. Let's hit pause. That's always a comfortable sort of thing to say when you're, not, you're a little uncomfortable in a territory. And, you know, you, we don't have a lot of time. We, we don't have time to hit pause. It doesn't mean we want to do things recklessly, but it means that we need to cowboy up and use the best science that we have, the best minds, and make some actions. We have got to make some mm -hmm. actions. Um, and again, I don't want to interpret that as reckless, but I want to interpret that as uh, uh, we have to do something. And I and I have looked into this uh, deeply before I joined the company, and certainly after a lot more. And I I really truly believe there's enough science, existing science, synthesis science, existing information about what happens when you dig up a mine on land, like. There's a lot of nickel under tropical rainforests. Mm -hmm. It's called nickel laterite deposits. And we know what happens there. We know about tailings, you know, talk about waste. The, the, the waste in terrestrial system mines are up in the 90s. You know, sometimes it's 98% waste and 2% metal. We know about that. That's solid. And we know about the toxic chemicals that these mines produce. We, we know a lot of that. We know there's no tailings associated with this. We know there's no toxic elements associated mm -hmm. with this being the manganese, the polymetallic nodule solution. Um, so there, there's enough, enough of the picture is there, in my view, to, to make a decision here that it is something that we should explore, that we should mm -hmm. move forward. Now, if we find something out that is horrific that is going to change the 
the earth in an unacceptable way by picking these rocks up off the bottom of the ocean in an area, again, about 1% or less of the seafloor, then, then we, I would recommend that we stop. But, mm -hmm. but right now, we, we don't see that problem. And we're, we're at the beginning of a three-year, um, very expensive environmental impact assessment. And, and only after that's done will we put forward, the industry put forward an application for an exploitation license. Mm. Right now, we're operating under what's called an exploration license. So there's a lot of safety measures built into the system already that I'm comfortable with, and I'm comfortable with what I can see before me, uh, that this this is a really good thing. It's mm -hmm. it, it, If we could get the metal out of the air in this room, I'd choose that, because you know, I like these polychaete worms probably more than most people. I've seen them <laughs> more than most people. I probably spend more time down there than anybody in this discussion, actually. Um, a lot of the, it's a very controversial, I mean, you know it's a controversial issue. Uh, so I have a lot of empathy and sympathy and, and connection to the deep sea. I don't take I don't say this lightly. I, I'm I'm doing this because taking this position and, and trying to educate people and trying to do the science to to assist the world in making decisions. You know, it's a problem of our age. I think we're mm -hmm. talking about the age of metals. I was thinking the other day we're also I think in the age of synthesis. We need to synthesize things. What was it? Somebody said every year now we generate more more yeah. data than the entire right. previous history of civilization. Um, so we're, we we have to synthesize. We have to use science, which is a system of rules that keeps us from lying to each other. I always love that definition from one of my teachers in <laughs> college. <laughs> um, and and make some tough calls. <clears throat> and th and this is one of those tough calls. But I am. Uh, I'm I'm comfortable. I'm very very comfortable with it, and mm -hmm. it it and sometimes it mystifies me that uh, some of uh, my colleagues uh, don't see it the same way. Many of them do, but they don't they don't hold their hands up and say so mm -hmm. because there's no upside for, for them. The yeah. the 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 perceptions, and I've been subject to it uh, from some of the uh, nonprofit organizations. And advocacy groups that don't want to see this industry start uh it's not comfortable you know mm -hmm. uh and so there's a lot of people out there you and i've talked about some of them that we haven't we know in common i don't want to go into them on the air to respect their privacy but in the in the confines of their home over a cup of coffee they'll tell you what they think but mm -hmm. it's not something that they're going to get out there and you know, really push for. I made the decision to get out in front of this issue, and it yeah. it was you know it was a cost to me. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, not 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 from anybody that knew me. All the people that knew me get it. They know that I wouldn't. I would never promote something that was bad for the ocean. But uh, a lot of people that don't know me have you know think that I'm you know I've heard terms uh, sold out, trader, yeah. things like that. Uh, right, and it's just not the case. A while back, Merritt and Ethan Perlin, two young Grom brothers who founded Crepit, came on the podcast to do a Stoked Grom Stories episode with me. Their story is way awesome. You can find it digging through the archives. And since, they've continued to grow Crepic with rad new gear. My favorite beach workout hat today is actually the mesh camo Crepic hat. And donate a portion of their proceeds to Pacers National Bowling Prevention Center to help prevent bullying and cyberbullying for kids and teens in the U.S., which is a pretty rad cause. Check them out at livecrepic.com and use the coupon code OCEAN20 with a capital O to get 20% off any purchase. While you're at it, keep your gear secure on the road or at sea with monster straps. My favorite straps from Mile 22, my personal friends down the road here in Santa Cruz, and makers of innovative gear for ocean sports enthusiasts. Monsters are purpose-built for prone paddleboards, SUPs, outriggers, and big wave guns. Learn more at mile22.com and enter the coupon code TOL15, all caps, for a cool 20% off your purchase. Yeah, absolutely. But that's what's interesting, too, just kind of looking at your life top to bottom is you've been a part of, 
science and so many different types of organizations, you know, from government to NGO and to academia, et cetera. And here you are in the, in the private sector. And what's so like kind of heartwarming to me in the story of Deep Green with, you know, the little knowledge I have is I honestly think it's going to be the private sector that solves a lot of these major problems in the world. When you can create a viable business out of doing something really good for the planet, like what you're doing by finding materials that we need, but making a business out of it, that's when other everybody starts to rally around it. The government's rally around it, funding rallies around it versus us waiting for the U.S. or any government, you name it, to finally do something or an NGO to find enough money to do something. And what's neat for you is you found, it looks like in Deep Green, a company that you agree with, the ethics, you know, the way you guys are transparent with your data, the stakeholder groups, et cetera. So talk a little bit about that, if you would. I mean, that's one thing sure. that I'm, I, I find fascinating about the company, and again, just barely scratched the surface of it, is you guys are very transparent you know, on part of the website of sharing the data you're collecting, you're not just down there looking to mine these nodules, these elements, but as you're down there, you're collecting data on what's living there, what's going on down there, you're sharing that. Uh, so talk about that kind of the, the nature of transparency and sharing the information you guys are collecting uh, within the, the company. Well, Josh, you know, you're right. We are in a new world and you've got the vision to see that the solutions have to be, um, not have to be, but they're better if they are market-based solutions. Yep. And I, I kind of look at Deep Green as a as a model of of how companies should operate in the future. We're kind of a hybrid. I think we have the values and the ethics of an NGO, but we have the business sense of a business. Mm -hmm. um, so the transparency is very important because the, you know we don't um, we have the privilege of. Uh, Part, you, you have to be a country to get a license to work out there. A company can't just go out there and get a license. So we have to we partner with countries, and, and we have chosen to partner with developing countries. Uh, and there's three of them, Tonga, Nauru, and Kiribati. These are all South Pacific Island countries. Uh, they're, they're all developing nations, or one of them is a least developed nation. And... Uh, so it's really their license and we have the privilege of being their exclusive contractor um, and and then beyond that it's the resource the whole world owns this area the one of the breakthrough concepts in the law of the sea was the something that's called the common heritage of mankind and they needed a word for things on the earth that do not fall into the jurisdiction of any one country. The atmosphere would be a common heritage thing. Uh, space uh, is probably or should be something, a common heritage idea. But, but in the immediate moment, the deep sea and the ocean beyond the 200 miles that countries are allowed to claim as sovereign territory through the law of the sea, that high seas area is common heritage area so we and these countries that we partner with i'm sorry it's kind of complicated but it's important to get the story straight so we and the partners that we partner with have a corresponding obligation to the rest of the world <laughs> who shares ownership of this and that with that goes the need for transparency we do it because it's part of the the deal but we also do it because it's the right thing to do. And uh, how do we do it? Uh, you know, of course, we get we want to improve all the time. We're, we're not perfect. Neither is the ISA. Neither is the UN. But they're all in a state of of growth and learning. And I I have confidence that they will um, they will tackle this. Uh, yeah, we we put out our reports and. Uh, make them available. Uh, we made a point of hiring a suite of scientists from all around the world to do our environmental impact statement. Uh, some of these scientists even have stated positions that they're not comfortable with deep sea mining for, uh, for their own reasons, their own personal reasons or professional reasons. And we wanted some of those on our team because we know that their science is high quality and is not going to be questioned. And they're entitled to their point of view. <clears throat> but having them on our team, having them doing research that fed into our environmental impact statement, we thought would help raise the bar on um, inclusiveness 
and uh, transparency. So the transparency is really all about, you know, we've held meetings where we've invited as many stakeholders as we could think of to come and we, we tell them what we're going to do. And we say, do you have any ideas? Do you have a reaction to this? Is there, are there better ways to do it? Uh, that's been a, a hard process. It's just coordinating that, trying to get everybody's schedules together. We will, of course, generate uh, data that'll be up online at the, uh, the, the, the daughter organization of the UN, you know, the UN has itself and then it has all these daughter mm -hmm. organizations. The UNEP is one people might've heard of that. Uh, this is called the international seabed authority. And that, uh, daughter organization, uh, is based in Jamaica and they will have online, <clears throat> uh, data that we collect and others collect, and it'll all be there for, uh, uh, for the uh, world to see. So yes, it's a new, it's a new age. There's, there's no secrets in this. I mean, there, there might be some, if there's a business technique that we have for separating uh, the metals more efficiently from this rock I'm holding in my hands, you know, that's something we might keep proprietary for a while because we invested mm -hmm. money to develop it. But when it comes to what we're finding in the natural environment of the world, that's all, that's something that we all earthlings have a right to know about. And uh, it's a tough one too, Josh, because the, you know, that's been the ocean's problem. It's whole, it's whole life. If the ocean has a life is that <laughs> it's hard, it's hard to see into it. It is <laughs> got that opaque surface. And it's always been out of sight for us humans. I know that a lot of the marine conservation issues that we have in the ocean would not have happened if we could if we could have seen into the ocean all those years. If we could have seen what was happening to fish stocks and coral reefs, and like we can on land, it, it, we, it, we would not have done it. The, the visual experience of us humans is is something that goes back to our primate days where we had to swing around in trees to catch branches we're very visually acute and it means a lot to us so uh uh yeah the uh the the, the people say you're going to go mining and then they can't see what you're doing because because it's mm -hmm. an opaque surface so we really need to be very proactive in making our activities available, bringing scientists on board that everybody trusts. Uh, you know, we're always trying to think of imaginative ways of, of bringing the world into this through camera feeds and um, articles yeah. and um, stories and stuff. Yeah. This podcast yeah, that's is an example, you know, uh, that's right. For, that's right. Thank you for helping. Yeah. Yo, hey, absolutely. Uh, but that's one of the things I also, again, I'm, I'm kind of becoming a fanboy of deep green for multiple reasons. I said a few earlier, but I also like the idea of what you're talking about is how do you describe what's going on under the water in general, but also what, with what you guys plan to do by extracting these nodules? How do you, how do you create some kind of visualization of that, that stakeholders, government officials, or my kids who are in high school, you know, biology class or oceanography class can relate to. And what you guys are doing is this concept that's becoming very common, at least kind of in the techie science world of digital twin, right? And we, we can spend a whole hour talking about this, but what I'm looking at your guys' diagram that really what it does, it seeks to provide a picture in many different ways of what's going on at the seafloor bottom. Everything from where you're working to what the the conditions of the water are, to the biology, what you're seeing, to the ecological, like the model, the habitat map, um, and kind of top to bottom. And so talk about that a little bit, if you will, like the challenge, I guess it is, and maybe this also is another question to you, your role in the company, what you've contributed so far and plan to do going forward. Like, how do you relate that digital twin into you as a scientist and what you're doing with the company? Yeah, well, the, uh, the digital twin, uh, you could also call it a, uh, a virtual ocean. Uh, yeah, even better. Uh, was, uh, uh, I actually wrote about that in my last book before I even knew Deep Green existed. Uh, hmm. book, my last book was called, uh, that I co-wrote with Nishan Dignarian. It's called The Soul of the Sea in the Age of the Algorithm. And it's, first half of the book reviews 
our historical relationship with the ocean and what past industrializations have done in the second half tries to look into the future about what will happen. And in that, uh, Nishan and I uh, uh, envisioned an, a virtual ocean. It's kind of an avatar experience where we could model what happens in the ocean and then do things to it and then see what the effects are. So this is this is really part of a, uh, it's not, it's unique to Deep Green and I believe we're the first we're the first contractor to propose using it as a as a as a monitoring tool, as a management tool, where uh, we can have an operating uh, twin. Uh, for some reason, two thousand and one just popped into my mind. You remember Hal, the computer? <laughs> yeah, they had, they had a Hal up in space, and they had another Hal down on Earth, and, right. they, and they would they would troubleshoot <laughs> what was going wrong with Hal in space by by looking at the one they had on Earth. It's kind of the same thing. If we have a if we have a problem. Uh, something emerges during the operation that we didn't expect, then we can go to the uh, the twin on on land. And the, and the way processing and our computer scientists people are, are advancing, you know, it's just going to get more and more higher and higher resolution uh, as we go along. Uh, a colleague and friend of mine named uh, Dr. John Delaney at the University of Washington has a said something to me once. It was just over dinner. It wasn't during a talk, but it's a quote. It's quotable. He said, Greg, the time has come for the human presence to be everywhere in the ocean. Hmm. And there's a lot in that. He didn't mean that we have to be everywhere in the ocean. But he, what he meant was the time has come for us to have the ability to sense yep. and report back on everywhere in the ocean. And for your listeners, think of, think of weather maps. Any, any day, any time of the year, you can pull up a weather map anywhere on the planet and you can see what's going on. We need that in the ocean. Mm -hmm. We need to be able to know how, what the eddies are doing, what, which tuna are spawning where, what the deep sea currents are. And if we had that, if we had that information, we could manage a lot of our activities so much better. Uh, for example, the BP oil spill, uh, if we had had a, a better understanding of what the currents were doing real time, uh, we could have managed that better. And so we're applying this this philosophy to the extraction of these uh, of these nodules, picking these nodules up. We will we're going to come across unexpected things. We know that, and having a uh, operating uh, HAL five thousand <laughs> uh, analog. <laughs> will be something that we 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 intend to use um yeah it's just a model it's yeah. a model will be fed by real data we'll be able mm -hmm. to correct it as we go along and hopefully uh one day it will it will actually mirror what's going on out there yeah oh, i think that's awesome and then so for you kind of day to day your role you know as chief scientist with the company is kind of what, what what's your your kind of your uh not marching orders but what's your focus then you know in all of this well, I'm a, I'm the I'm the chief ocean scientist, and I'm also on the board. So I've got a, you know, fiduciary what do they go fiduciary and uh, policy responsibilities for the company as an entity in the world, and that's I take that very seriously. Uh, and then within the company, we have just finished uh, designing. I think I think it's the largest environmental impact assessment that's ever been done. Wow! Uh, but 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 I probably could be stand to be corrected. I'm just not aware of the other ones, but it's huge. We're we're looking at a big block of ocean out there and we are spending three years collecting information to describe what we call in science the baseline, which is how that system operates without any interventions. And then we're going to put a do a collector test about halfway through this three year period where we're going to put a scaled down version of the collector that we will use eventually. And we'll operate that for about a month and see what it does to the sediment, see what it does to the bottom. And then we'll use that information to uh, project out larger impacts from a full scale collector. So it's not, it's not just me. We have got a fantastic team both internally and we've have a, a scientific advisory panel that's been helping us think about this. So I spent a lot of time thinking about that, those kind of questions and you know, what depth 
what depth should the discharge pipe be at mm -hmm. to cause the least disruption to the ocean systems? Um, what size nodules? Uh, there are certain animals, they're called obligate species that only live on nodules. So mm -hmm. we want to make sure we leave some nodules there for those guys. So what size nodule is the right size for that? Uh, I spent a lot of time giving interviews like this. Mm -hmm. uh, it's an important part of my, my job. Uh, a lot of time networking with the science community that I came from and one person who's known me my whole life uh, was my, my uh, one of my great mentors. Uh, said to me, you know, Greg, you've just come back from where you started. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, this is what you were starting. This is what you were doing when you started. You were just you did deep sea technology, deep sea research and deep sea. It wasn't mining, but it was it was deep sea technology. And I said, yeah, you're right. That's why it's so comfortable. It's, it, it, it is the sense where I started. I kind of got diverted into uh, shallower water uh, biology, conservation biology things. So uh, I'm at the end of the day, you know, I'm, I, uh, the reputation of the company's environmental program is on my back mm -hmm. is the, I'm, I'm the highest standards. I recruit, uh, the members of our science advisory council. We've got a fantastic one, uh, from senior scientists from some of the leading institutions in the world. Uh, so that's, uh, that's my, that's, that's really what I do. It's, uh, it's, it's all about. It's all about communication. It's about ensuring the highest standards of science. It's about engaging the community because I speak their language. Uh, a lot of companies don't speak the language of the science community. Right. And, and the science community doesn't speak the language of the business community. So I'm trying to make that bridge. Uh, I mean, I could describe a day. I, I you know, I, I wake up in the morning and um, I working on a paper with uh, a colleague on biodiversity right now, uh, having to do with how do you describe biodiversity in the deep sea? It's, it's a whole new, it's, it's a new, one of the issues that, that we're dealing with is, do you know what, uh, what, when I say megafauna, what do you think of Josh? Whales. Yeah. Yeah. Traditionally megafauna has been, uh, has been uh, big animals like, mm -hmm over i think somewhere it was defined as over 35 kilograms but there it's not a there's no one place there was no latin scholar or renaissance scientist that actually codified what megafauna means so i get into this issue and and i i hear oh there's so much biodiversity down in this area of the clarion clifford infracture zone that we have to be so careful there's so much megafauna and i said there is, I said, but I, I've been down there. I know what it looks like. It looks like a desert. It's like mud with some rocks here and there. And occasionally you'll see a starfish and annelid worms and things. And they, yeah, all this megafauna. And, and the word megafauna in this context mm. means anything you can see yeah. is megafauna. <laughs> and, and then suddenly all the microscopic animals become the biodiversity in this discussion. Whereas on land, we don't, we don't do microbes. Mm -hmm. We do an environmental impact assessment. We don't even talk about them. We stop. So I'm working on a paper to kind of define the use of these words in this issue because it's gotten it very confused. Because if someone, people say there's all this megafauna down there, they think whales and tigers and whales and uh, big sharks and things. So that takes a lot of time, you know, sort of nutting those kind of issues out, and then, and then we'll have a then we'll have a a team call within the company to uh, to discuss our, our our schedules, our voyages. We have a ship that's going out to this area with one of our partners, Maersk, the big shipping company in Scandinavia, uh, and then I'll have an interview with somebody like you uh, about mm -hmm. about the issue and unpack it. Uh, and that I have found this coronavirus very conducive for the work that I do. It gives me yeah. more time, more thoughtful right. time to, to do this kind of, I like doing this. Yeah. Uh, and I, 
and then I have my own podcast that I interview people on. Uh, so I'm still still writing papers uh, and planning and working with my fantastic colleagues that uh, they do they do a lot of hard work. Uh, Jason Smith, Michael Clark, uh, Tony O'Sullivan, uh, Eric Ives. We've got a, we've got a fantastic team, and um, yeah. So that's that's what we yeah. Nice. You're busy. You're very busy. That's cool. And I get the coronavirus kind of lockdown. Like instead of waiting in line for an airplane to go somewhere else, you could sit down and actually focus on your writing or speaking or thinking or whatever. I mean, that's one of the nice things I've noticed too from my own just mind is I got a lot more time to actually focus on things think to think about or write or create versus, oh, I got to go run to the airport or I got to commute now or whatever. It's interesting. Yeah. You know, I have, I, you know, Josh, I find I have more conversations now than I did before. <laughs> But because I'm not there in person, the uh, the bandwidth is 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 mm-hmm. smaller. You know, we normally we might be in the same room. I don't know how you do your podcast, but with mine, I usually do them in person. So I'll have a few hours with the guest, and we'll really have a lot more detail. And yeah. if you go to a conference, you've got the evening cocktail hour and the breakfast, and you have all this much more. But uh, I go to conferences almost every day now, like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's so it's it's not that bad i think it's going to change the way we do business for, for yeah uh, forever yeah I, I do agree with that so talk about your podcast what's it called where can folks find it and kind of what's the the format i'm guessing it's scientific by nature <laughs> well yeah it's called the uh, the sea has many voices and i stole that from t.s Eliot. Hmm. and uh i started that because um the ocean touches everybody and and many people and we all touch the ocean so I, I didn't want to have it segmented by by design it's it's a variety of people everybody touches the ocean so it's uh about it's science-based because i'm a scientist but um i have guests like uh kelly 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 slater mm, famous cool. surfer mm-hmm. uh is one of my guests and you know i talked to kelly about his his art what he does and then we bring it back to what he's seen and he was telling me things like oh greg i was in a surfing competition in italy i think he said and the water was so polluted that i was worried i was going to swallow a plastic bag when i when i came off my surfboard you know so i hear what it's like for him and he Mm -hmm. talks about it and he started these companies that have uh ecologically friendly products having to do with surfing. Uh, Jared Diamond, the anthropologist, Mm -hmm. uh, good friend of mine. Jared and I talk about the historical relationship of people with the ocean. And what were those people like that first went out of sight of land as they went from island to island? Because, you know, 20, 40,000 years ago. Uh, Hollywood soundtrack movie composer John Powell is one of my guests. He did... uh, Call the Wild that Harrison Ford was in recently and other ones. But John cares about the ocean. So we sat around and we had a scientist from Scripps who specialized in underwater sound pollution, Simone Bauer Pickering. And the three of us talked about sound. And she talked about sound pollution in the ocean, which John was very interested in. And then he talked about his art of writing music for movies. And John had a uh, interesting, I thought, a very laudable philosophy he he picks movies that have a positive message. Mm. He won't take a movie that's like about real negative energy and real bad stuff. Yep. Uh, and he loves the ocean. And we all, at the end of the day, depend on the ocean. It is what makes this planet a nice place to live. If anybody doubts that, we've got plenty of examples yep. in our solar system that show what it would be like here without an ocean. And Venus is, is the direction in which our climate is heading, by the way. Mm. Um, I'm not trying to be, uh, I'm not suggesting that we're going to be that hot that fast, but it's, that's an example of a runaway heating climate scenario that really went over, over the edge. Uh, I don't think it'll ever get the bat bad here. Yep. So that's the podcast. Got it. It's not just Got about it. deep green metals, although I do have guests. I had Gerard Barron's been a guest on the program and other yeah. people to do with metals, but it's a, it's a broad based uh, podcast. 
Nice. So for folks listening, the sea has many voices. I'm guessing you can find it in all the major podcast platforms. Yep. 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 Awesome. Cool. I'll put a link into yep. it in the show notes as well. I mean, Thank I'm always you. looking for new, new stuff to listen to. Yep. And I love the, yep. I love the whole, uh, the premise of it, you know? Um, so yeah, I'm gonna add that to my list as well. well thank you. Yeah. And I'm, I'm yeah. going to start listening to this yours too now. So cool. Oh, that's great, man. Um, at, least we'll have each other listening. at least we'll have each other listening to our shows. <laughs> that's right. Just one is it's, it's good enough. <laughs> well, Greg, I really appreciate uh, your time today, man. And it's been awesome to hear about all this. I love the idea of. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to another podcast episode. Can't do it without you. If you like what you heard, would really appreciate you sharing the podcast with people you know who might enjoy the stories that we hear and the guests we have on. And of course, even better, reduce plastic, do something good for the ocean and for each other. Thanks again. We'll catch you on the next episode.